you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. So, here in 17, we started uh, with Jesus actually praying for uh, himself to be glorified. He would glorify the Father in being glorified. And then... We, we move from there to he's praying specifically for the 12 that have, have been with him. And now we finish chapter 17 in praying for the people who will believe as a result of the word of the 12, the word that goes out from the 12. So chapter 20 here, I'm sorry, not chapter 20, verse 20 here gives us the audience who he's talking to and who he's praying for. And he says, I do not ask for these only, but, I, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So the intended audience here is no longer the twelve. It's no longer even himself, but it is um, the people who make up the church. It is for all of you. And I think the wonderful thing that we see in the church is that I get to look out from here and see the generations of this happening, Right? So Christ prays that the word of the 12 goes out for people to believe. So what does that actually look like? We are all spiritual fathers or, and mothers, or we become that, with sisters and brothers. So I'm going to make a couple of you stand up, or a few of you stand up if you don't mind. Would the Richards stand up for me for a moment? Tamara, would you stand up? The Holtz and Gary and Colleen? All right. We get to see a glorious picture of the word being passed along through generations, right? So Jesus is talking about, hey, the 12, the word of the 12 goes out. But that happened a long, long time ago, right? So how does it get to us today? It's, it's through it being passed along from generation to generation. And that's not only from mother to daughter, father to son, those things. It's from believer to believer, those who have been called to be his sheep, Right? So we see, <clears throat> excuse my word, but a little bit of an older crowd standing right now. But then if we ask the butlers to stand, right? Matt Groves to stand. The strays to stand. All three of you stand. If you want to, David. All right? And then from there we see some of their kids. We see uh, the next generation, the Taylors. Right? We see Dake, Winslow, and Zane. We, we start to see these, these generations of people. So we, we see the word going out, and it's passed along faithfully by people that, that just labor to love the Lord and make him known. So what does that actually look like? So I know only a few people are standing, but it's the church, Right? You all represent the church. The word goes out to the church to build up the church so that the church knows that the Lord has come, the Messiah has come. John's, John's whole purpose in this book is so that we may believe that the Messiah has come. Right? So you guys, you guys represent that in so many ways. And I'm sorry, I'm not leaving a few of you out purposefully, but I want you to see a really good picture of the gospel spreading from believer to believer, just being faithful. All right, you guys can go ahead and sit down. So when we look at this passage specifically, we see Jesus praying for you, praying for the church, right? So what I want you guys to see this morning is this. The Father loves the Son, and the Son loves us, and has made us, and has made the Father known to us, Jesus then desires that the church be unified in this love and he vows to preserve us with that love until we see his glory. So I want want you guys to see the truth of these things, um, that Christ desires these things for you. This is the Lord that we know talking to his Father. He's talking about us. And I want you to see that he desires these things for you, that, that that presses us into a deeper understanding and love for him. And I want you just to walk out of here encouraged 
knowing that the God of all time, all power, all majesty, who dwells in you is actually laboring to glorify himself through you. And then in this, that we then should love him and worship him and talk about him. So I'm going to pray and then we'll kind of move on. Um, Lord, we do thank you for time where we can gather the church of you that you have called your own is able to gather. Um, we are not selected at random. We are selected by you and called by you. So Lord, help us labor in your word. Help us understand it. <clears throat> help us follow you. Help us labor in unity and help us understand that you love us immensely. And it's in your name I pray. Amen. So I have two points today, if I were to distill this down. They are these. That Jesus desires unity in the church. If you, for you note takers out there, if you want to write these down. Jesus desires unity in the church. And again, Jesus vows to preserve you and desires that you be with him in glory. So how do those things hit you? One feels hard, doesn't it? This idea of unity, laboring in unity. It's something that, honestly, our flesh is probably like, hey, I could, I could do away with that. You know, I don't, I don't need that. But then the other one just feels wonderful, doesn't it? This idea of being in glory with him. So let's, let's start here with point one. Jesus desires unity in the church. So this is starting at verse 21. So that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So how is it that Jesus and the Father are one? And how are we in them? So I want to talk about these kind of, this, this couple passages here that use the word in a lot. Um, it's something that for me, I often get stuck on this idea of being in Christ. It's something that I think personally is just for maybe for me, maybe you guys are picking this up easily. I feel stuck because I don't understand the the mechanics of how it actually works. So it's, it's a paradox. I know that I can sit here and acknowledge that it's a paradox, but I know in my head, I'm always still trying to like piece out like how the mechanics of this actually work. So I want to focus on that a little bit. And that first starts with, the relationship of the father and the son and how they are in one another. So again, I'm going to repeat this just as you father are in me and I am in you. And I think for us to understand this, we need to understand the Trinity. It's the only way we can understand the concept of those two being in one another. All right. So the Trinity, if you guys don't know what the Trinity is, or some of you don't know the, the, the concept of the Trinity is how we actually define the Godhead, the three persons. So if if we define it really simply, it's this. God is three persons. And how many of you kids in here actually know this? God is three persons existing as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. Um, Each person's fully God, though, right? Um, And that there is still yet only one God. So one sticky point when we're actually thinking about the Trinity is how we navigate the idea of, of God being one, um, but also three persons. And I think this is kind of what we need to clarify here in our passage so we can understand some of Jesus' statements about unity. Uh, we see God the Father and Jesus being in the Son, or I'm sorry, God and Jesus the Son being in each other, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. And I think we can understand that there are roles each person of the Trinity fulfill. Um, And those are simply this. The Father has sent his only begotten Son to accomplish redemption. And the Father and Son have sent the Spirit to apply that redemption. But where we can struggle is still how this interaction of how they, they are one and yet distinct, right? So let's think about this for a moment. There is something they share. We kind of start breaking this down. There's something they share and then the roles they fulfilled, which I just mentioned. The Father sends the Son to accomplish redemption. The Father and Son send the Spirit to apply it. 
Um, but what do they share? And that's what, that's what I want to pr- pr- press into a little bit. So they share a nature, and it is the same. And what do I mean by this? So you guys have probably heard this in lots of ways, the, the attributes of God, properties of God, the character of God. There are all of these things that we use to kind of describe this. But when we boil it down, what we're really trying to explain is what is the makeup of God, right? What are the things that make up God, that um, he is an uncreated being, and how do we actually understand um, who he is? So these attributes make up the divine nature of the Godhead, and they exist in all three persons, and so the nature of all those three persons are inseparable because they are shared. Does that make sense? They exist in the Godhead as all these attributes, but yet they are still shared by the three persons. And they are inseparable, even though we kind of think of them as three persons. And I think that's still some of the struggle, right? It's still a paradox to understand how do they share these things. But I think what helps us is that we kind of break down what they share, um, so that we can better understand passages like this. So some of the attributes, I'm going to just list off a few. And, and I always try to pull in some of the Redeemer membership material because, <clears throat> frankly, some of you went through that a long, long time ago. And it's good to uh, have the reminder. So uh, this is actually from the section that just talks about God. This is the Godhead. It says, God alone is omniscient that he's all-knowing, that he is omnipresent, that he's everywhere all the time, that he's omnipotent, all-powerful, immutable, unchanging, eternal, that he has no beginning or end, and sovereign, that he has supreme rule and authority. And then I'll add to that a few more, which are that all three persons of the Trinity not only show love, but that they actually are love. So we need to understand not what God does, but who God is. And these attributes help us understand that. So then they all show mercy. We see that. The Son coming to us is a mercy. And yet they are still mercy themselves, right? And they all show justice, but they are also just. So, um, and there's more, but I'm just listing a few. And then the last thing is, is that they all share a will. All right? As the Godhead executes its will... It is not done individually by the Son or the Spirit or anything like that, but it is done singularly by God because they share these things. All right, So everything that emanates from them, everything that is enacted in the world is actually done by a singular will. All right, So these things all make up their nature, right? So, And I also want to make a note here because I, I found myself not even clarifying this in my notes, but this passage doesn't directly bring in the Spirit. It talks about God the Father, God the Son. And we see that through lots of places in Scripture. But we have to realize and we have to know that if these th- if, if the three persons are all one, then they are all present any time we talk about one of them. So if we say, hey, God the Father, and we're talking about God the Father, what the Father's doing, who He is, so on and so forth, we also know that the Son... And the Spirit are there as well. And the same thing, if we're talking about the Spirit, we know that God the Father and God the Son are there as well. So it's, it's in that way that we actually see them as being co-equal. All right? They're equally present at all times. And so even though we talk about them individually, we know they are present all the time. So they share that nature. They are present equally um, and... They are in each other. All right? So they may fulfill different roles, but they are fundamentally of the same nature. And some, some other ways that we, we think about this in terms of even science, like that we're, things are of the same kind. They're the same makeup or essence or genus or some, you know, if you start pulling out, I am not a science guy. Amber or Hansen could come up here and tell you all about some of that stuff. But what I'm trying to describe is that they, there is a sameness among the three persons. So, and here in this prayer, the son labors for you, right? And you need to understand that 
He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Right? That's from Hebrews 1. This, this, again, the same idea of oneness, of equality, of being of the same kind. All of those things. So his nature is inseparable. Again, this is the same idea. His nature is inseparable um, from God the Father and God the Spirit. So let's move on to 21. This is where Jesus says that they may also be in us. So if you guys listen to me for any amount of time, you'll know that I switch words around all the time. The actual passage says that they also may be in us. Just something, I think my brain gets ahead as it's reading or something. But So the question, how are we in God the Father and God the Spirit and God the Son? Okay, we begin as unrighteous peoples. And I'm telling you, I'm going to get back to unity here in a little bit. All right, if y'all are wondering. Okay, we begin as unrighteous people. And we have to understand the process of our sanctification. So in Romans 3, Paul says this. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. This is where we all begin. And then in chapter 8 of Romans, Paul says, God sent his own son in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then he later goes on and says again, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then again, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. And again, one more passage. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus... Who, who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So again, the process of uh, becoming Christian, becoming in Christ, and also the process of sanctification, that we move, we start in unrighteousness. Christ makes us one of his sheep. We receive the Holy Spirit. And then we start this long, somewhat painful journey of sanctification, of being made like Christ. And that happens until we die or the Lord returns. And while it's sometimes difficult to understand how the Spirit dwells in us, these passages illustrate that Spirit does dwell in us. We have to accept that. It's hard to understand. It's hard to wrap our minds around. But the truth is always pressed. Paul does this a ton of being in Christ, this idea that the Spirit is in us. He keeps pushing it over and over and over. So though we may not understand the mechanics of it, we know it to be true. And it's by faith we know it to be true. So, but as a result of the the Spirit being in us, God shares some of his attributes with us, right? <clears throat> so, God shares with us his holiness, his love, his truth, his righteousness, his mercy, and his beauty. And this certainly does not mean that we are gods ourselves, but that we can share in Christ's likeness because of the work on the cross and because of the Spirit's work in us. So we receive these things. They are given by the Creator and are granted to us based upon the work of Christ. It's not something we can assume ourselves or attain ourselves or grab ourselves. It is not our work, it's Christ's work. So without him, we remain, as one of my favorite preachers over the last probably year or so said, his name is David Miller, recalcitrant sinners, that we are stiff-necked, they were obstinate, uncooperative, and completely hostile to the work of God. But we are instead indwelled by the Spirit, and we are infected. We are affected by him. Infected might be a decent word, but that's not what I was really going for. We are affected by the, the indwelling of the Spirit. So, And as a result of Jesus' work on the cross, we have glory. All right. So let's pick this up in verse 22. The glory you that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. So if we're looking at the beginning of chapter 17... 
which Pastor Brandon, <clears throat> I almost called him Pastor Stiko, and I get in trouble for that every time. Pastor Brandon preached on that a couple weeks ago. Uh, we see that Jesus prays to glorify your son so he can glorify you. You know, this is a verb we see. It's the action of, of glorifying the Father through the work of Christ. Um, but in this passage in particular, it's, it's a thing. It's something we receive. So what is that? And I think that's a, an important distinction because we need to understand the difference. All right, so I'm going to pull a few passages in from John. The, so chapter 17, 14, and chapter 1 um, to help us figure out what this glory is. So starting in 17, this is verse 6, and, and Matt, Matt gave us this last week. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you have, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know the truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. So throughout chapter 17, Jesus is intimately interested in one thing, right? Letting us know... That he came to tell the Father. Right? He wants to bring him glory. It's, it's, a, it's a resounding theme. Hey, Lord, I want to glorify, or Father, I want to glorify you. I want them to know that you sent me. So if we look at chapter 14, he's, uh, John says, Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself in him. So in verse 6, we have the word, and also in uh, chapter 14, we have the commandments. And these are the same things. And if we go all the way back to the beginning of John to chapter 1, it says, In the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word, sorry, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. So if we're wrestling with verse 22 here and what this glory is, I think these passages from John 1, 14, and 17 help us figure out what they are. All right, so the glory is this. Christ has revealed to us everything the Father gave him, which every time I read that, I feels like it feels like a completely anemic statement to me. I'm just like, oh my gosh, Tony, that's, that's like the most common thing. You know, we're teaching in Sunday school class, yada, yada, yada. But the implication of that statement is this. The Father, or Jesus has revealed the Father to you. Jesus revealed that we are kept in the Father's name. Jesus being the Word has revealed truth to us. Jesus accomplishing redemption has given us eternal life. Jesus has consecrated himself as the high priest, gone to the cross, and we are moved from unrighteousness to righteousness, and we now share a part of who he is. All right. And then if, if you look at this passage, there's this, di- this, this distinction between the world and what we have. So the world does not know the Father. So the, the world has not been given any of those things that I just listed. So the world doesn't have the Father, and they do not have his name. They don't have the truth of Jesus. They don't have the revelation of Jesus. And the net effect of all of that for the world is they don't have eternal life. So the glory you've been given is that you know the name of the Father. And if we kind of traverse the list, that ends in you also having eternal life and one day being in glory with him. So how does all of this bring us to unity? All right, like I said earlier, my main point was about unity, and let's try to, you know, swing back around to that. So if I read the verse again, that they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So we are one with God because the Father and the Spirit are one. They are in each other, and because we are in Christ... The Father has revealed all things to us through his Son. And this all culminates into this question of unity. 
Is unity simply so that we like each other in the church? We've been preaching on warmth and love and encouragement and, and things like that. Is, is that the end of what we're doing here? I don't think so. All right. Is it simply God the Father kind of yelling in the back seat of the car to his kids, you can't knock it off back there, I'm going to turn this thing around and go home. It's not what he's doing either. All right. Jesus gives us the answer to this question twice. Why unity? Why should we have unity? He says, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And then in 23, he says, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. So the passage of this passage and the entire book of John is still telling us the same one thing, that Jesus is the Messiah, the one God sent to accomplish redemption for his chosen people and the one in whom we are to believe. So what does unity in the church actually do? I don't know about you guys, but I like the idea of like, okay, there's the idea, the, the why, but what, what's the net effect of that? Like, where does it hit the ground? So a unified church in Christ testifies that the man who was called Jesus was truly the Son of God. The church then testifies that, that Jesus is in God the Father, that they are one and that they are of the same nature. The church then testifies that the will of the Father was to send the Son. The church then testifies that he has the power to condemn flesh and is bringing us new life. The church then testifies that the Spirit is laboring in all of us. And again, who is the church? We are the church. Redeemer is one church of many that is the church. So, and this leads the world who is left in a position where they have to wrestle with not only the reality of what the scriptures say, but with a unified people who are just the same as Christ manifesting the name of the Father. All right, and I don't, I know you guys know this, but I just want to say it for clarity. I know none of us believe that we are manifesting it in the same way of like Christ's divinity can manifest the name of the Father. But but the, in our unity, we are testifying to the name of the Father who has done the work through the Son. All right? So we share the word in how we do that. We are telling of the good news of Jesus. Our very presence here, each Sunday in this building, proclaims to the world that God is not dead, that he was truthful, that he loves his people, and we often say this in communion, it's from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that we proclaim Christ's death and his work until he returns. Unity in the church here does all of those things. But our flesh and culture desire different unity, right? So a few examples. So the first church I started attending when I was 21 really struggled to fulfill the mission because people were worried about their little petty grievances. These were not doctrinal fights. These were, these were not fights about a pastor who was incorrectly preaching the text. They were fights over the colors of walls and which rooms need to be this and that. And carpet. One day when we replace this carpet, I hope that we can find some unity and let the carpet go, whatever color it is. Or if it's polished concrete. Alright. We need to find unity over these minor little details. So we need to fight about the right thing. So, And again, what effect did COVID have on the church? The mask mandates, all the conversations around those masks. You know, we, we looked around the world at other believers and thought, oh questioned, are they a believer because they're either wearing a mask or not wearing a mask? Because it ended up going both ways. All right? We struggled with that. We struggled to find what it actually looked like. And I don't mean the world, I mean even Redeemer struggled to find what it actually looked like to have unity centered on the gospel and yet we have different views about masking or not masking. 
there have been tons and tons of social movements that just have popped up in the last few years. Um, things like just political issues, uh, you know, LGBTQ stuff. There have been all kinds of things that have been vying for attention and, and essentially making distractions in the church. And we have seen over and over and over again, those things actually don't bring people to unity, it seems. They can be unified around an ideology, but they, they never really land on any unity. It seems like it just kind of starts to partition people off over and over and over again into these kind of smaller warring tribes. And I recently watched a debate at the Oxford Union in England, which I've never heard of, I will be honest. But uh, it's just a forum for conversing about ideas. And the topic of the debate was whether the Anglican Church of England should sanction gay marriage. That is becoming an enormous issue, not around the, not only around the world, but even here in the States. It's something that is pulling at the church and trying to draw them out. And it will only seek to divide, and or it only seeks to divide, and it'll create factions. It'll it'll do all of those things. Um, so. These are all real things that we're wrestling with. So what are you about? What are we as the church about? So this is going to feel like a totally odd illustration, but I find it completely absurd every time I see it happen. So I'm just going to run with it. So (laughs) Joe's back here shaking his head. Yes. So a lot of you know I'm a racing fan. More of a dirt racing fan than a pavement racing fan. But if you have watched any NASCAR race or any major dirt race at all, and if you haven't, you can come watch them with me. I invite you to do that. But what you see is <clears throat> these guys that have their their bottles in view of the camera. And the, the interviewer comes up and says, Hey, man, what do you think about whatever, the win or that wreck that happened or so-and-so bumped you or whatever the situation is. And the guy stands there and he's like, yeah, well, my uh, Pepsi, Dr. Pepper, Mountain Dew, Chevrolet was good today. I thank my crew. And he just keeps rattling off all these things. Then he goes into the sponsors about, oh, man, I just, I think Penske Shocks and this company and this company and this company. And it just gets wider and wider. There's 30 seconds of that typically, 20 to 30 seconds of it. And it makes me laugh. Because I know they have to represent the brands. They've got to represent the brands. But it just feels so funny to me how they posture themselves while they're doing it. You know, they've got to get their Monster Energy drink in the shot or Red Bull or whatever the situation is. So the question is this. Back to the one I just asked, what are we about? So in that debate at the Oxford Union, uh, the guy I was listening to, Calvin Robinson, made a final point that the church is countercultural. The author of Right and Wrong is God himself. It's not something that is derived from humans. It's derived from God himself. So are we about Jesus? And you're never going to hear me say, are we repping the brand of Jesus? But are we about Jesus in a way that that's... That's our desire. That's the fruit of our spirit. And are we willing to live countercultural so that we represent Jesus well? So, again, this is where our personal agendas come into play here. Are we willing to lay those down and scuttle them so that we testify well about Christ? So, how do we actually pursue unity in the church? So King Solomon asked for wisdom. He said, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. And the Lord responds that he's pleased with Solomon. And then again, in Paul Paul in Ephesians 4, he urges us, and he says, Walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, and to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So how do we actually do that? How do we get to places where we can discern between good and evil? And certainly, how do we maintain 
unity in the spirit. Or maybe how do we even have eagerness to do that? So the fruit of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So we need to follow Solomon's example in this and actually ask for these things. Lord, I need you to help me love other people. Lord, I need your joy. Lord, I need your peace. Lord, I need your patience, and on and on. And Paul says something curious in verse 16 of Ephesians, or Ephesians chapter 4. And this is the same section where he's encouraging us to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. He says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. And then if we kind of hop a couple verses, and he says, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. He's talking about us. He's talking about the church. The body is the church. And we are to grow up into Christ. I'm not saying anyone is immature. I'm just saying that that's his encouragement to us. We need to grow up. And then, as each part is working properly, the body, the church, you all begin begin to build up each other in love. We have to cultivate our relationship with the Lord to do this. How many of you have become peaceful, if we, if we think through these things that we may be struggling with, how many of you become peaceful by sitting and stewing? Just sitting there being mad. My wife did X, Y, Z. My husband did X, Y, Z. I'm struggling with, I don't know, eating that piece of cake. This guy right here, struggling with eating the piece of cake. How, how do you actually approach the Lord in those things? Do you allow them to just stew? I am not picking on TV at all, but how many of us just sit in front of TV and not actually cultivate our relationship with the Lord? We can fill in the blank with all of these things, whether it's TV or phone or whatever. I'm not picking on any particular thing. But how often do we... Do we sorry, Chet's making me laugh here. How often do we actually pursue the Lord when we're struggling versus just kind of filling the gap? in our discomfort. So again, we have to go before the Lord and ask as Solomon asked, Lord, give me peace. Lord, help me no longer be anxious. And I think ultimately it boils down to this, Lord, help me be satisfied in you. This is how we begin working properly as we grow in Christ. And why do we do this? Why unity? Why this encouragement to pursue unity through sanctification? I think it's fair to say that most churches don't just wake up on a Sunday morning and decide, we're not going to be unified today. We're just done. We're moving on, changing our name, yada, yada, yada. We're becoming Unitarian, whatever, you know, which doesn't work either. But they don't just, it's, it's not an instantaneous thing. Instead, it's a really slow decline and it begins with our personal spiritual health. All right, Jesus did not show up one day to Redeemer Church, and you all just happened to be here, obviously for a potluck, all just happened to be here, and he said, I'm just going to save these people who are in this room right now. No. Again, thinking back to the illustration, he pulls in these generations of people. They're not bio- on biological lines. They're just along lines of like the chosen sheep. So he's pulling them in. He's gathering those people to himself. And it exists here. You all exist here as Redeemer Church. So he calls you and then he says, follow me. And that is something that did happen individually. He is gathering you all to himself or has gathered you all to himself. So unity in the church begins with each of us actually fighting for unity. Good marriages don't simply happen because you get married. So I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but we all know that, right? So good marriages happen because two people are actually laboring at laying down their lives for each other. And that's hard. So healthy churches, by the same token, don't just happen because you join a church in membership. Hey, 
I'm at First Baptist this, or I'm at Redeemer, or I'm at the way, or whatever. That doesn't mean that you just unity somehow just occurs naturally as a result. Okay, and I'm not saying Redeemer is unhealthy. Please hear that. But I am saying we can't stop fighting for unity. And unity at Redeemer happens when each of us are asking the Lord to wring out from us the desires of the flesh. Okay? And he, asking him then also to replace those things with the fruit of the Spirit. So as we worship Jesus in our personal lives and here corporately in unity, we what? It goes right back to what Jesus is saying in this passage. We testify to the world that Jesus the Messiah is the one whom God the Father sent, and he is the one on whom people are to believe, and that he loves his people. All right. So I'm going to move on to the second half of my sermon. I promise you it's not <laughs> it's not as long. It's much shorter. But second point, a love that preserves us into glory with him. So this is verses 24 to 26. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. I don't know about you all, but these first few verses give me great hope. The idea that we one day be with him in glory and that we see his glory on top of it. So if you look at verses 25 and 26, they're very much a refrain. It's a place where Jesus is repeating himself. But I want to pull an idea out of those two verses in particular. He says, I will continue to make it known. And this, I believe, is the desire he has to preserve us until we actually see his glory. So First John says, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. So the Father keeps his children. Because of the Father's great love of the Son, he has entrusted you to the Son. And this is an old love, right? An old love. From before the foundations of the earth. And because of that old love, Christ has come to you, given you his spirit, and will, you will one day dwell with God and finally be able to see fully who he is. And because he has entrusted you to the Son, you cannot be plucked away. Think about this. His love of you is so old, so incredibly old. We can't imagine how old. And do you believe that he wouldn't actually keep you and preserve you until you see his glory? I don't think, I don't think that's the case. Okay. This preservation leads to us being with him so that we one day see his glory. And he desires you to be with him. So I'm going to go back to verse 24. I know I kind of inverted these a little bit. I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And I've always wondered what heaven looks like to be in the presence of God. So I want to read a few pieces of uh, Revelation 21 and 22. I'm not reading the whole thing. Just reading a few pieces of it. So if you guys want to turn there with me, we're going to start at, the, at 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain 
anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And then we're going to skip down to verse 9. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. I'm going to hop down to 22. And I saw no temple in this city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And its light will, in its light will the nations walk. I'm sorry, by its light will the nations walk. And the king of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. They will bring it into the glory and the honor of the nations. Both, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the book of life, the, in the Lamb's book of life. And then this is the last paragraph, 22. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So I've mentioned before the Chronicles of Narnia. I just love those those books. Um, in the story of the last battle, um, the, the, or, sorry, the book, The Last Battle, and specifically towards the end, when they pass through, the Pevensies and a few others, pass through the hut into Narnia. And then, you know, they're, they're kind of walking around. They end up talking to uh, a soldier there named Emmeth. And then later on, they, it kind of gets to this place where they start describing running and never being tired. And I don't know about y'all, but I can't imagine what it's like to run and not be tired. All right, that just sounds like the most glorious thing. Some of you may like running. Cool. Just not my thing. But this always makes me tear up when I read it because this is just an allegory of what heaven is actually like. It's that all of these things pass away. All right, it's a place where he does wipe away every tear, a place where... There is no mourning. There's no more pain, no more sorrow. All those things have passed away. So when you think about your own life and you think of the turmoil in your own life, the struggles you have with relationships, mental health, cancer, drugs, alcohol, the struggles with money you have, the house that you own that's in a perpetual state of decay, and the terrible things that we read about every day that humans do to each other. There's so much just atrociousness out there. It all passes away. So I found out this week that a friend of mine that I had known for a long time recently passed away. He was my pastor for several years. He baptized me. and <clears throat> Sorry. And then, he, years later, he ended up marrying me and Val. And I didn't even know he had passed away. I knew he had struggled with cancer. I knew there were his body, his body had just diminished so much. Um, but I didn't know he had passed away. And admittedly, at first, I just felt this wave of anger. All those thoughts of, 
not knowing his struggle for years, missing those things, not being able to talk with him, all that stuff. But then I realized that Steve has now been ushered into the presence of the Lamb. Cancer is no longer a part of him. I didn't think I was going to cry at all. But there are no more tears for him, no more sorrow. No more wheelchairs. And then this truth came to mind from First John. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. And we shall see him as he is. Steve gets to see him as he is. We, the church, those who follow Jesus, will one day see him as he is. And that is a glorious thing. So do we desire the same things as Jesus? I started this with talking about that Jesus desires unity. He desires for us to be with him and he will preserve us. That's the the perennial question of our lives, right? Do we desire the same things that Christ desires? Or do we desire what we alone desire, what our flesh desires? the treasures and kingdoms of our own that we try to build. In this prayer, he's laboring on our behalf. A prayer spoken a couple thousand years ago still rings true today. We are the recipients of the word of the 12 disciples. This word is the revelation of Christ and has brought us into fellowship with God. Jesus does truly desire to dwell with us. Jesus desires for us to make the Father's name known by how we live. And that's that we live in unity. So do we desire those same things? I encourage you all to fix your hope on Jesus. And to think eternally about how you live your life. Show the world that the Messiah, the Son of God, was sent by his Father. Join those around you in laboring to prepare the bride of the Lamb.